We continue the Shir in Navi. We discussed the story of Yerav Benavat and how he insisted on leaving the Amuna completely to a point where the Gemara says that the rabbis of the Gemara stated very clearly that he is one of those who definitely, absolutely lost his opportunity to enter into Gan Eden forever. Forever afterwards, Yabba cannot enter into Gan Eden, which means that he descended to Gehenim, there to stay eternally. The reason for it was that Yabba was not just a sinner, not just an evil person who turned away from religion, but that he was instrumental in that thousands, hundreds of thousands or more Jews were led into Avadazar, the worst possible sin. He was a chayte umachti who did not repent for the last day of his life. Of course, if Yavim Benavot would have repented, if he would have done tshuva, despite the vast number of sins, crimes, damage he had done, his sins could have been erased. He could have repented not only for himself, but even for the entire klal, all of the people of the ten tribes of Israel. He did not, and so he ended up where the Gemara states he is now. Well, the continuation of the story tells us that Yeravim had a son, Avion. This son became very ill, and deep in his conscience, Yeravim knew that it was futile to turn to idols Davin to pray for the health, the cure of his child Avia. And so he decided that there was only one means of, one source of true assistance, a true cure, and that was through the Navi with whom he had acquaintance, Achia Hashilini. But he could not face Achia any longer. And so he sent his wife to Achia, but he sent his wife in disguise. She should not be recognized, so that she'd be given an audience by Achia in a friendly manner. However, before she came to Achia Shileni, Hashem spoke to the Navi and revealed to him that Yeravan's wife was coming, and also told him the exact message to give her. When Yeravan's wife came, Achia Shileni spoke first and said to her, you thought you could hide from me? You could hide from a Navi of Hashem? I have a message to you. The words of Hashem are, go back home immediately. The moment you step across the threshold, your son will die. Not only that, but he, after his death, will merit a normal burial. No one else in the family will be buried normally. None of them will meet a normal death even. The reason that Avion deserved this special reward to rate a normal burial, which is very important for the Neshama too, for the soul, is that Avion went to visit the Beis HaMikdash during the holidays. Against the will of his father, he did it in a clandestine manner. He sneaked out, never <coughs> revealed to his father that he was going to the Beis HaMikdash <coughs> to serve Hashem, to bring Kabbalahs, and for this, of course, he refused to accept the false beliefs of his father, this is his reward. She returned home. The moment she stepped over the threshold, her son died, and he was buried. Now, this is what 
is told to us in the Navi. The Zayda Kaddish reveals a deeper insight into the story. Zayda Kaddish says that there was a discussion that took place in heaven, a controversy. In fact, it was a heated argument, Kaviyachol, between Hashem and the Bezdin Shamal, the heavenly court, the angels in heaven. Years before this, Hashem said to the heavenly court, it is the custom of heaven, the character of Hashem, the anibus, the humbleness, to discuss any future plans with his court, with the tzavakos, the army of Hashem in heaven, these angels. And therefore Hashem said to them, I call upon you to give your consent to my plan. My plan is to have Yeruvon die now. Now, this is before he became king. Now, while he is still a tzaddik, he is a tzaddik, a lamdan, a very holy tzaddik, I want him to die, I want him with me up in heaven. And the angel said, why should he die now? He is so great a tzaddik, he can learn so much more tzaddik, he can spread so much more faith and religion. It's unfair to kill him. Hashem said, but I can see the future, what's going to happen to him? And the angel said, if you can see the future, we cannot. And we maintain, we insist, that you give him a fair chance. It is unfair to shorten the life of a tzaddik who is producing so much good in the world. Hashem said, again in the kaviyach, the humbleness of Hashem, Hashem said to the angels, you have overruled me, I accept your decision. The result was, of course, as Hashem had predicted, Rabbi turned evil, but afterwards there was no rejoicing in heaven, because this constituted a loss. It could have been a very important new member in the yeshiva of heaven in Ganadin. He was now lost because of the fact that the heavenly court, Kaviyachal, had overruled Hashem's decision. Zayda Kodesh says later on, Aviyam was born. Aviyam, in his youth, his early youth, showed signs of following his father's greatness when his father was young too. Uh, he had Mesidus Nefesh, a lot of self-sacrifice, and going to the Aliyah, going up to the base of Mikdash during the three holidays. And then Hashem said to the heavenly court once more, Note Aviyam, oh, what a wonderful boy he is. <coughs> heavenly court said, of course, we've noticed it. Hashem said, I want to take him out of the, this world. I want to remove him from a possible deterioration the same that occurred to his father. The heavenly court said, we don't see anything in the future. All we see is that he's such a wonderful boy. Let him continue. Hashem said, this time I will not listen to you. I've listened to you before. I've suffered a loss. Once is enough. Hence, with the story, we can understand much more clearly the inside story of Aviyam's passing in his early age. This is the story the Zedekers tells us about Yeravam, that let Aviyam die pure rather than reach an older age and be killed as a chote, as a sinner. And so Yeravam ben Abad continued to reign for a period of 22 years. 22 years until he passed away and his son Nadav took over after him. His son became king his son followed the same 
path that his father had taken, also spreading idol worship. The son reigned for a period of only two years' time, after which Torah tells us that Basho, one of his servants, rebelled, killed Nadav, he slew him and took over the kingdom. Uh, we come to this point where Basho was now king of the ten tribes of Israel, and he reigned for a longer period of time. Meanwhile, let's go back to the two Shvatim, which is known as the Malchus Yehuda or Malchus based David, family of King David to whom Hashem had given his promise that never would the kingdom leave the family of King David, even if he'd have only two tribes, but there would always be a king of the Jews coming from King David's family, and even this severance was temporary. The ten tribes would leave the Jews temporarily. Eventually, there will come a time when they will once more be reunited. There will be a solid, complete twelve tribes of Israel, over which they will rule one of the family of King David, Shiach ben David. This, of course, will take place when? In our time. Now, and then, Rechavam, the son of King Solomon, ruled, and as we said, he did a lot of damage because he alienated most of the Jews. The ten tribes left him, and he saw that he was a very weak king. He too began to spread some of this idol worship. He incurred the wrath of Hashem. And the Gemara says that what led to it partially was that he was born from a mother, Naamor, who came from the country of Ammon. She herself the wife of Shlomo Melech had converted and she was good. But there was this blood in the background which Rechavim inherited and he lived up to that type of blood, that side of the family. So he spread some of the idol worship of Ammon among even these two tribes. He was physically a weak king. He wasn't a hero of any kind. In his time, for the first time, there was a battle, an invasion by the king of Egypt. Shishak, the king of Egypt, invaded, and he freely went to the treasures that King Solomon had amassed and accumulated. He took a lot of these treasures, removed them, took them for himself, but especially, the Gemara says that he had his heart set on a special throne that King Solomon had made, a throne made of bone. And it was so elegant a throne that Shishak desired this for himself. He finally had the opportunity to get it. How did Shishak know about this? Because this throne belonged to his son-in-law. King Solomon had married the princess of Egypt, naturally converting her first, at the same time being a son-in-law of the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt had seen this throne, he coveted it, he desired it so strongly that when the opportunity arose now, he invaded for the sake of getting this throne, he succeeded with ease, he removed a lot of the treasures that King Solomon had amassed. The weakness of Rechavam proved his undoing because there was no way he could defend himself against the king of Egypt just as he could not defend himself against the ten tribes of Israel. And so he lived a life known as the weak king. When he passed away, his son, Aviam, reigned after him, also Aviam, and Aviam ruled for a period of three years. He committed a lot of wrongs too. Finally, when he passed away, his son Asa took over. Asa was the first really good king 
descendant of King David who purified the land. He removed most of the, practically all of the idols that existed. He purified, he cleansed the people from this idol worship. He even removed his mother, Macha. Now this is a, an important case, an important example. This was his own mother. But his mother had turned to not just worshipping idols, but demonstrating to others how to worship idols. We cannot repeat some of the things she did because they are gory details. Suffice it to say that the Gemara says, and it is brought in the Sifre Kabbalah, that the truth behind idol worship, when we try to think back now, how people worship idols. Today, of course, there is no such thing because the rabbis of the Gemara in one strong, united effort, eradicated the last trace of idol worship. Uh, today, the simplest person, the least religious person, would never be tempted to perform this abhorrent type of sin. In those days, when that sin was very prevalent, the secret of idol worship was what drew them so strongly. Why worship statues or things that seemed to us ridiculous? The fact was that it was directly tied in with Zeus with illicit relationship with women, so that the teva, the desire, was one, and that's why the sin was so prevalent among so many Jews. And therefore we can understand, we said, Macha, the mother of Hosa, had committed this sin to such a great extent, had spread the sin throughout these two tribes, and Hosa, her son, became king, he removed all the idols, and also removed Macha as the queen mother. Uh, this appeared to be a very disrespectful act from a son to a mother. Yet again, we are told, we are taught, in the Torah, the Gemara, Shulchan Aruch tells us that the mitzvah of kibud avoim, respecting parents, has its limits, its restrictions. The Torah insists and demands that children respect the parents as much as they do Hashem because there are three partners in the birth of every child. The father and mother produce the child physically. Hashem provides the five senses and the soul. Hashem says, since we three are partners in you, I demand that you give us equal respect. Despite this, though it is equal, yet if the two partners should rebel against the third, against Hashem, if they should tell the child to disobey Hashem, then that rule is nullified. No longer does there exist the command of respect or honor to a parent. A parent is respected only as long as the parent himself or herself is loyal, pays allegiance to Hashem, who is the creator of all. Once the parent attempts to turn the child away from Hashem, and then the child is commanded to disregard the parent's orders. Despite this, of course, there still should be no open display of disrespect. The Gemara says even if the parent is a Russia, completely wicked, it is forbidden for a child to embarrass or to insult the parent. He is not to obey orders that would transgress against Hashem's commands. But he still must show a sign of passive respect. In this case, also was compelled to remove his mother in an act of disrespect because if he would not, she would have continued to mislead people into following the, the same wrong path of 
Avedizora as previously. And so she was dethroned and also reigned over the Jews with a strong hand. And he, despite this, he was very much beloved because the Jews knew that returning to Hashem would mean a new life of happiness and purity for them. At this time, the king of the ten tribes, Basha, we said who had killed his master, Nadav, a son of Yeravam, and who now reigned over the ten tribes. At first, Basha was very powerful, and he built a large tower blocking the gates of Jerusalem, not allowing the Jews to enter into Jerusalem. Until Asa began his reign, the Jews found had a lot of difficulty in getting into Yerushalayim. When Asa became king, he felt that it would be too difficult for him, as king of only two tribes, to declare war against the ten tribes. It was too risky. And so Asa wisely enlisted the aid of the king of Aram, the Aramites, at Syria, listed their aid to invade the ten tribes, and at a price, of course, which means that Arabs can be bought. The king of Aram agreed, brought his armies against Basha. Basha was forced to retreat, and then Asa removed this large tower, and as an insulting sign, he used the materials of that tower to build new cities for the two tribes of Israel. Now the Torah tells us that Basha was a powerful king, but he too turned to the same degree of idol worship as his predecessors. Hashem sent the Navi Yehu to Basha with a stern warning. He told him it was Hashem who elevated you, who made you king over the ten tribes of Israel. You could have been loyal to Hashem, and if you would have been loyal, the kingdom would have remained with you and your family, with your descendants. Because you turned away from Hashem too, because you caused idol worship to be continued among the ten tribes, therefore you will be destroyed just as Yeruvim was. There will be nothing, no trace left of your family. Uh, it's important to note that the curse of the Navi against Yeruvim had come true, because when Basha <coughs> killed Yeruvim's son, he also killed every member of Yeruvim's family. There was no trace whatsoever any person even remotely related to Yeruvim. And this warning was given to Basha now too. Your entire family will be wiped out. Nothing left of your family. Basha reigned for 24 years. When a warning is given, by the way, it's given not to the person personally, but to his family. That's why Yeruvim was not killed. It was his son that was killed. In this case, too, the warning was given to Basha, and the curse came true during the time of his son. Basha reigned for 24 years, and then Elah, his son, took over, reigned for two years, and his servant, Zimri, rebelled against him and killed him, slew him, while Elah was drunk. Then, when Zimri killed Elah, he automatically took over the kingdom, figuring that now he'd be king and he'd have a peaceful reign. But the people turned against Zimri, despite the fact that he had fulfilled the Navi's warning. Because Zimri killed Basha's son and also wiped out the entire family of Basha, Zimri reigned for a period of seven days, one of the shortest periods of, of uh, acting in the royal capacity in history. 
end of these seven days, the peoples, the ten tribes, selected themselves, Omri, a different person whom they chose as king. They felt that this slave who killed his master was too low to deserve the royalty. They selected Omri. Omri, with the help of his army, besieged the city where Zimri was. Don't lose track of these names. And this was in his seventh day. And then Zimri fled, went into the palace, set fire to the palace, and the entire palace burned to the ground with Zimri in it. Now they had Omri as king. Again, there was a division of opinions among the ten tribes. People were divided, and half of them selected Tivni, another person as king. So in this division, there was a period when there actually were three kings over the Jews. The side of kingdom of Yehuda, there was Asa, who ruled over the two tribes. There was Omri and Tivni, and this lasted for a period of five years. Omri had the upper hand. He ruled over more, a larger number than Tivni. In these five years, Omri decided on a on a ruse, a plan that would solidify the kingdom for him. So he called upon the king of the two tribes, Asa, and said, let us merge families. Let my daughter marry a son. It's usually the parent of the daughter is anxious. So he approached the subject, and this way, this would mean, this would prove that he was the one of royal blood, because Asa certainly was the royal family, now that Asa made a shidduch with him, a match with him, this proved that he was fit to be king. And then the people themselves killed Tivni, and Omri ruled for a period of seven additional years, which means a grand total of 12 years. This was the reigning period of Omri. Nothing of significant importance during that time. And we've gone over this quickly because we now come to a point or we pause to discuss a new person who made history. The son of Omri, his name was Achav. Achav was the second king that the rabbis discussed at length. First, Yeruvim, they said, lost his chance for Ganadin forever because of his evil. Second, Achav, the rabbis said, where the Torah states that Achav sins, far surpassed those of Yeruvim. If Yeruvim worshipped idols a little, Achav multiplied that manyfold and spread the, the Avodah among the ten tribes to a much greater degree. Achav ruled for 22 years, and he had a wife, too, who was just as evil, even more so. His wife's name was Izevel, which, of course, is not a very complimentary name. But as the Gemara says, there's a lot in the name. This was the wife of Achav. We'll see later on how important the part she plays in the evil acts of Achav. Now, to start the story of Achav, the Torah tells us first an incident which seems unrelated. And yet, with this incident, we begin the story, the match, the battle between Achav and one of the most important figures of all of history, Eliyahu Hanavi, who rose up in this time. Zara Kodesh says that one of the rabbis asked this question. We find the story of Eliyahu beginning in the Navi. What about the birth of Eliyahu Who were his parents? Zara Kodesh answers this is an illegal question. 
You cannot dare to ask a personal question about one who is angelic. We do know that Eliyahu Levi was the Gilgul reincarnation, the rebirth of Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron Akon. He was a Kohen in a sense. We once discussed this in the Gemara class, the statements in the Gemara about Eliyahu Levi, the controversy, the debate in the Gemara itself. Some rabbis maintain that he was Pinchas, which means that he came from Leah. Other rabbis maintain he came from Rachel, who's the family of Yosef HaTzadik. In any event, we'll have that more of that later on. Meanwhile, the incident that opens this story in detail is the case of Chiel. Torah tells us that Chiel, an unknown factor until now, a very wealthy man, decided to build a city. He was very rich, wanted to build a city for his family, actually a large city for himself. And which city did he decide to, re- to build? Rebuild the city of Yericho. Yericho was a city, was the first city that the Jews conquered under the leadership of Yeshua. There, there was a miracle in conquering that city. Well, the walls of Yericho sank into the ground, and the order was for the Jews to put the city in Cherem means to destroy it completely. No Jew was ever allowed to have any hanor, any pleasure out of it whatsoever. At that time, Yeshua placed a curse upon not just the city, but upon anyone who in the future would try to rebuild it. Curse was, he who tries to rebuild a city will have to build a foundation first. The moment he builds a foundation, his oldest child will die. And as he keeps on building the city, subsequent children will die too. Until the last act, putting up the gate, final act, then his youngest child will die. Torah says that Chiel was very stubborn. He refused to obey this order of the Torah by Yeshua. He began building the city of Yericho, despite the fact that he saw this curse come true with the death of his oldest son. His oldest son's name was Aviram, who died as soon as he set the foundation. He continued working on the building of the city, and every one of his children died until his youngest son, Segov, died just as he put up the last door in the city. At that moment, Echiel broke down. He couldn't take it anymore, and he sat down to mourn the passing of his sons. This was actual Avelus. He was mourning, sitting Shiva, and because he was an important person, one of the wealthy leaders of the Jews then, it was only fitting that the leaders of the Jews come to visit him to pay their respects. Menachem The visitors that came, there were two, Eliyahu Navi and Achav, the king of the Jews. Eliyahu tells us that at this point, as they sat there, there is a law that when one comes to be Menachem Ovo, pays respects to a mourner, it is forbidden for the person paying his respects to open his mouth, to say a word, until the mourner begins the conversation. In this case, Eliyahu and Achav the king were required to sit there quietly and wait. Suddenly, Chiel opened up. A tirade, angry outburst at Eliyahu He took him by surprise for a moment. The Imara says that he inquired of Eliyahu very angrily, tell me what does the Torah say about one who builds the city of Yericho. And the answer was, 
softly, does say that if you build a city from beginning to end, every one of your sons will die. This is what is stated. Mechiel asked, who said that? You'll never answer, this was Yoshua. He said, fine. Now tell me, what does the Torah say about idol worship? What is the curse or punishment for idol worship? The answer was, you know, the answer that says in Kriyashima, if you will turn away from Hashem or worship idols, the Otsar Es Hashemayim Velayiyamator. Punishment will be that Hashem will dry up the heavens. There'll be no rain coming down. There'll be a famine will result. At this point, Chil cried out to Elianavi and he said, "How come that the curse of the student Yeshua has come true, and the curse of the Rebbe Melshirabena, who wrote that, did not come true? How come there is a rain?" And food is the crops are growing while there is so much idol worship. Why is only one half of the Torah coming into life and the other half is dormant? Kriyanavi was known as a kapton, a kanoi. He always sought to avenge the honor of Hashem. So he leaped up and he said, he swore, swore by the name of Hashem, that henceforth he will control. He will control the power of rain. He will hold the key to rain, and there shall be no more rain in Israel until he gives the word for it, which means that a famine will result. From that moment on, there was no rain, the crops dried up, and a very serious famine broke out. Elora says what actually happened. Again, this is a slight repetition. We've had this before in the Yomar Shia. We're in Navi now. But it's important to have this reviewed for our own sake, too. Yorantinus says there are three keys that are owned by Hashem. These three keys, these three powers, are not even transferred to angels. There's no angel who has the power to perform any one of these three acts, only Hashem himself. First one is birth, life being brought to this world. No angel can produce life. It is only Hashem who does that. Second is the key to Trias HaMesa, renewed life. It means when the dead will come back to life, Trias HaMesa, that can be done only by Hashem. No angel has the power to bring life to a dead person. Third is the power of Motor, rain. This key is in the hands of Hashem. No angel, even, certainly no man, can produce rain. There's a story long, long ago, many years ago, at least uh, 25 or so years ago, so you might not recall this. There was once, I better not to mention it, a certain professor who claimed that he had the power of seeding the clouds in a certain type of grain with which he could fly over the clouds, seed the clouds, and bring rain in cases of drought. This professor was very famous in America, and he sort of defrauded the government and some of, a lot of the believers with this hoax. He took a lot of money for it, and of course, he failed. For a while, they believed him, and he's passed out of history. At that time, though, it was a joke to those who had learned this Gemara, knowing that this professor, with his planes and with his seeds and everything else, couldn't produce one drop 
of rain, unless he let a glass of water out of his plane, that would be a slight trace of the results of his seeds. In fact, as the Gemara says, even an angel could not produce rain. Only Hashem. So here, the Gemara says that Eliyah Navi prayed to Hashem, and he said, Hashem, I ask for a favor. For your sake, for your honor, give me, bestow upon me this power which you have never given to an angel. Give me this key to rain. He prayed to Hashem, and the answer was in the affirmative. Hashem granted him this power. He transferred the power to Elianavi, which means that there will not be any rain coming from heaven until this prophet will say so. Villagon says that this is hinted at in a Pusik, a very famous Pusik where the Zara Kaddish learns all the spheres from, we won't go to that part. Pusik is Pituche Chesom Kedish Lashem. This deals with the clothing of the Kohen Godel, and hidden in these words, Pituche means the opening or the key, Mafteach. Pituche Chesom Kedish Lashem is key to Chesom is holy for Hashem only. Chesom, the letter Ches stands for Chaya, which means birth, life. Tuf is Tchias Amesim, and Mem is Motor. These three items are in the hands of Hashem only, and yet they were transferred, the key to rain was transferred to Eliyahu. For this, the Zayi Kodesh says, to repeat a story again, that one of the Minim, one of the Bikursim, once asked Eliezer, how can you say that Hashem is so great and powerful if it says, the Pasuk says, There is no one among the kings of the Goyim like you, Hashem. No one among the Goyim is great as Hashem. In that case, then, this means to imply that among the Goyim there is no one like Hashem, but among the Jews there is. What kind of a creator, what kind of a deity is this if there are more like him among the Jews. There must be something wrong with the statement. Blessed answered, the statement is a correct one. Among the game, of course, there is none. Among the Jews, there is. Because of the will of Hashem, there are those who are like Hashem. Hashem is the one that's married Hagashem. He gives rain. We have Elianavi too, who gives rain. Hashem is Mechaya Mason. He brings the dead back to life. We find later that Elianavi, Elishanavi brought dead back to life. There is this power that exists among the tzaddikim of the Jews, and this is a statement by Hashem himself. As Hashem says, the Pasuk, that me, me shall be. Hashem says, I rule over the entire world. I am supreme. The supreme ruler of the entire universe, the heavens, everything. But the question is, Hashem says, who rules over me? Hashem himself answers it, Tzaddik. A Tzaddik, Kaviyachal, rules over me, because Tzaddik, Gezev, Kaviyachal, Mekayim. When a Tzaddik requests something, when he prays, and there is a softening in heaven, and Hashem says, I must consent to the request of the Tzaddik. If there is a harsh decree in heaven, Kaviyachal, Gezev, Tzaddik, Mevatel. A harsh Gezera, the Tzaddik, through his Tfilais, can nullify that gezera. This, as I said, shows the power of a tzaddik, and this we see now in the story, where the key to rain that was never given, even temporarily, to a malach, was now given to Eliyahu And With this key, with the power over this key, he told Fiel, you shall see now, there'll be no rain whatsoever 
until I give the word for it. With this, he left angrily, and immediately the heavens closed up. Yotzar means they dry up completely. There was no rain, and very shortly afterwards a famine ensued. Very serious famine. It got to a point where people were starving. The extent that the lives of most of the Jews were in danger. Torah tells us that this reached a peak, a point where two women came to Achav, King Achav, and said, we want a trial. We've come to you on trial. And he was already wild with anguish, seeing the suffering of his people. And he said, what do you two want? One woman said, I want this second woman to keep her side of the bargain. Because we made an agreement that yesterday we reached the point of starvation to such a serious extent that we made a pact. She said that yesterday I would slaughter my child and divide the flesh between us. Today, she in turn would slaughter hers and we'd have that child to eat. I, yesterday, I did kill my child. And I regret to say that we did consume him. Today, she feels satiated. She's filled refuses to keep her side of the bargain. I demand that you see to it that she does this because you as king should either have had rain come to us or else observe, witness what a sad state we fall into. Achav tore his hair. He cried out bitterly and said, this is the fault of Eliyahu Navi. He called to his servant Ovadia, Anavi. We'll speak about him later on more at length. They said to him, I want you to summon Elianavi immediately, because he's going to pay for this with his life. At this point, we begin a series of miracles, the miracles of Elianavi. As a result of this story, we come to a new era, era of Nisim, Mufsim, miracles of great Sadiqim. We'll tie this in with the stories in the Zara Kodesh of the next year. We hope to show how important basically is the Amuna Sadiqim. Above all, faith in Sadiqim is equivalent to faith in Hashem. We should be zechut to that Amuna Bishlemus, and in that Tzchus we'll see the coming of Mashiach. Amen.